0: Augmenting reality is an innately human desire to share our ideas and perception in order to feel connected. Welcome to the Cyberdelic Podcast, where startup CEO Niels Peel and co-founder and anthropologist Damir First explore how memetics and cultural transhumanism influence our digital reality. If you are interested in understanding how ideas shape culture, technology, and the metaverse, you're in the right space. In our first ever episode of the Cyberdelic Podcast, we introduce the concepts of cultural transhumanism, memetics, work, and play. Join Nils and Damir in exploring their memetic identity, the ways culture shapes our thoughts and vice versa, and how memes might achieve immortality.
1: I think we're live. I think uh, we have music in the background. I think we've got three camera angles. I think we're all set. We've got water, we've got lighting. I think we're all set to have our very first conversation under the topic of the mimetic perspective. From the very beginning of starting a Matterless and starting Aoki and trying to start this movement, mimetic engineering has been very core to what we do, which I understand makes no sense to someone that doesn't know what memes are.
0: Well, I would say the first thing that people would associate memes with is cat images. Right. And, you know, pop cultural landmarks which have some sort of captions on them. Some of them can be quite convoluted, so a lot of people, like, they don't get the newest memes. So that's what the idea of a meme is
1: in popular culture. Yes, in an act of great irony, cosmic irony, the word meme has had some mimetic transmutation and now has a new meaning from what it originally meant. But the term was actually coined in the late 70s by the biologist Richard Dawkins when he wrote a popular science book mm-hmm. trying to explain to the layman the Neo-Darwinian synthesis. The selfish gene. The selfish gene, right. Mm -hmm. And the big idea in the selfish gene was that natural selection, survival of the fittest, is not best understood at the level of the species or even the level of the tribe or surprisingly even at the level of the individual which is you know where most Darwinian thinking is you know the the fittest individual is the one that survives but the neo-Darwinian perspective that Dawkins was putting out in the book added that well actually the most predictive power comes when you look at the gene the the genetic playground that's where survival of the fittest really matters and that helps us understand why some things that are bad for the individual propagate just fine and in this book he proposed a thought experiment he said well what if culture and behavior language all the things that we do also were subject to natural selection what if we invented a gene analog and we called it a meme Mm -hmm. it's a very nice elegant clever name Mm -hmm. Because, you know, in French it means the same, so, you know, nice, it's copyable, and it's uh, mimesis in, in old Greek, meaning also something related to copying, I think. Otherwise in Andreas a way, will...
0: Yeah, Andreas, our or, or Greek uh, team member, I'm sure he can...
1: Uh... Correct me. Yeah, yeah. exactly.
0: And um, uh, also it's, in a way, very
1: similar to the word memory. It is. And the thought experiment was well, let's see how units of behavior may propagate from individual to individual. So, a meme is the gene equivalent of a behavior. It's an arbitrary boundary that we're going to set around a behavior or a set of behaviors because memes are not physically real. So, you can set these boundaries a little bit where you want. Let's just set the brackets around whatever behavior you want to examine. Okay. Right? That's a meme. So, for example, waving to say hi to people is a meme, Mm -hmm. having this kind of collar is a meme, the way we have our beard is a meme, Mm -hmm. the word meme is a meme, the word word is a meme. So a meme is any kind of observable and copyable behavior. And the idea was, okay, so what does survival of the fittest mean for memes? For genes, Easy to understand. It's the most copies. Whatever gene makes the most copies of itself is the fittest one. Right. So what would it it be for a meme? Turns out it's the same thing. Whatever makes the most copies of itself is the fittest one.
0: Okay, like if we talk about cultural units that can self-replicate and propagate, how do they mutate?
1: How do ideas
0: mutate? Yeah. You know, Chinese whisper is the game, right? Mm. So I was at a certain point I was told by a person who's into the art of storytelling, right? So she's a professional storyteller. She's been doing it for a very long time. And uh, right now, there's a really big network of people across the world who are connecting about the love of storytelling and tradition and so on. So they did this project where they had, I think, around 30 or 50 people. And they did the Chinese Whispers game. So the first person started off a storyteller from a certain country was telling a story the next person in line was also a storyteller who got to hear it only once and then immediately they needed to tell their own version of the story right yeah so long story short after they all did it the final version of the story was played for all the people on a zoom call and Mm -hmm. had nothing to do I mean nothing to do there was the first story was about a man who was at the riverside and he had a magical creature appear and you know the 30th story was about a merman who changed sex right, it was completely right. i mean there was a kernel of, like what the story was about there but it completely changed so it's mm. like if this happens to people who are professional story storytellers and collectors of narratives how can it be that memes actually can propagate and keep their
1: fidelity So to study or reason about the fitness of a meme, I contend that we can think of the meme as having three dimensions, right? The first dimension is its observability. Mm -hmm. How likely are you to get exposed to the meme, right? So the waving behavior, very observable. But imagine if the greeting was instead that I'm supposed to hold up a secret amount of fingers behind my head, right? You can see that I put my hand behind my head, but you won't be able to observe the part where I put a certain amount of fingers mm-hmm. up, right? So the, the meme has to be observable. That's a very important quality, but it's not the only quality because the meme travels through a medium, people. and. For it to be copied, when I say something and then you're going to say it to Dushko, then you need to be able to replicate what it was I did, replicate the action. So simple actions like a clap, very easy, Mm -hmm. a more complicated action like a wave like this might be harder to uh, faithfully propagate. This is the fidelity of the meme. How likely is the meme to come out unmutated in every generation of Transmission. And the game of telephone is fun because, well, the mutation rate is pretty high. But here's where memetics get super interesting because memes can do something that genes cannot. Memes, because they travel through the medium of people, thinking beings, mm. can sometimes self repair. And you can demonstrate that with a game of telephone also. So what does it mean that a meme self repairs What does it mean? <laughs> what does it mean? I'm that so sorry. <laughs> so, if we imagine we were to play. Let's imagine we were to play a game of telephone. But I'm gonna prime you a little bit. I'm gonna say we're gonna play a game of telephone with a number. With a number. And then I say 99. Technically, I said 99. That's not a number. But because you know it's a number, What you're gonna say to the next person is 99. at least there's a greater likelihood that you will fair there's an opportunity for the meme to repair itself there and the meme may have been mutated of course maliciously by me in this case or just through poor transmission right maybe you just didn't catch it right maybe there was a noise but because the meme travels through humans sometimes they can self-normalize or self-repair. And they can do that if they have sufficient, uh, what I would call scaffolding. Scaffolding are other memes that are in place, that are loaded into the RAM of our consciousness that allow us to repair the meme when it gets to us. So for example, in this example you had with the game of telephone. Okay, let me, let me try, right? All
0: right. Let me try. So first of all, number. So when I hear something that sounds like nine, or nian, there is only one number that that sounds like, so that's the number nine. The same with 90. So when you put those two units together, it becomes 99, Yeah. Okay, let's make a thought experiment in the sense of what else could sound like 99, but it's not a number.
1: Well, to demonstrate how how important the scaffolding is here, if we say again, okay, we're gonna do it with a number, This time I'm going to say the number in a language that you don't know. Fair, okay. Quatre That's 90...
0: No? It's still 99, 99. but you need to say it. Okay, of course, yeah, because it's in French, and they have a system where it's two times 40, 10, 9. It's uh, a miracle that they can do accounting. Exactly.
1: So because you don't speak that language, you will be unable to self-repair that meme. It doesn't help you that you know it's a number because you don't don't have the prerequisite scaffolding to really repair that thing. But again, a very important, like genuinely important difference between memes and genes is that memes can self-repair. And that means, in theory, this is a pretty cool thing, your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren will have very little genetically in common with you. Very little genetically in common with you. Because each passing generation only gets half and so on and so forth. But even if you just kept cloning yourself over and over, genes mutate and those yeah. mutations will keep adding up over generations. And there's not Copies, much-
0: A photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy. Yes.
1: Yeah. As long as you keep cloning the previous clone, etc. eventually your gene will have drifted off somewhere. Mm. Right? Okay. But in theory, you could, today, author a meme, write a song, come up with a catchphrase, invent a rhythm or a greeting, whatever, that could be performed by an alien civilization ten million years from now. In theory, you could make a meme that self-normalizes, create enough scaffolding, create a whole memeplex, a memetic vehicle, that can travel through time, repairing itself through the audience, and just staying put. So I would argue that memetics is unironically the biggest game you can play in the universe. Back in the day, people like Genghis Khan, you know, they like, want to have a lot of sons and daughters. Okay. Jeff Bezos wants to have a lot of dollary dues. okay. <laughs> but if you can author some memes with longevity, if you can start a memetic snowball that lives past you. and builds up momentum and builds up a memetic castle over the generations. You're playing the biggest game you could possibly play. There is nothing bigger than memetics in the universe. In fact, I would argue that memetics is a not only a perspective, but you can see it almost as a force of nature that is not entropic. The universe itself falls apart through entropy. That's what the universe wants. It wants to fall apart, it wants to go back to sleep, it's done, whatever. It it wants to level out. The meme wants to be complex, solid, rigid, because fitness for the meme is to demand as much attention as possible of the medium. It's not enough for the meme to be in my brain, it wants to be uttered. So it's in your brain, so you will utter it. So it, it wants to be everywhere.
0: So it's like a force that wants to replicate itself, but it requires consciousness
1: to spread. Maybe? I don't know. It's spreading through consciousness now, but we could argue Okay, so the meme, what is the meme? The meme is information, essentially, mm-hmm. right? It's information. It's a
0: piece, a unit of information. And
1: as a memetic purist, I would argue that even DNA has a memetic component. It's information, sure, that is like trapped in this biological substrate, which mm-hmm. is not the best substrate for the information to be in. But now information is traveling freely through, as Terence McKenna would say, noises through our little mouth holes, Mm -hmm. right? Now information can leap from from consciousness to consciousness, but also from computer to computer. A computer virus is also a meme. I don't know that it absolutely requires consciousness, but it's definitely thriving in a world with consciousness. Especially because here we are talking about it. Here, the meme is talking about itself. As uh, that's the perspective I I try to espouse, right? Because mm-hmm. as um, you know, uh, Sam Harris might point out in one of his talks. You know, you don't really have free will. Your thoughts occur to you; they pop up right. as happenings right. in the mind. Um, so you know, it certainly feels to me like I'm choosing to talk about memetics. But physically, that doesn't seem to be what's happening. Physically, it seems to be that this talk is happening. And to me, that's like goosebump inducing. The meme wants to talk about itself. It wants to build up this podcast. It wants to do all of these things. It wants to have scaffolding so that one day the meme can be self-aware. That's a a very interesting and, um, you know, in a way
0: we could call it an unverifiable perspective. Yes. But still helpful, I believe. Fair. So, why do you personally think that this is important? Why do you want to talk about it? Or is it just the fact, because I know about meme theories, I mean, we spoke about this you know, on many occasions, but you seem to be particularly taken by it. So, so, why is it that this is something that you
1: often want to talk about? And I think it's rooted in my cyberdelic transhumanism. I grew up online. That sounds wild, but like I genuinely mean that. Like most of my formative years were spent online to the point that by the time I was like 14 years old, I spent most of my time thinking in English and not in my native Swedish because most of my conversations, most of my interactions, most of my relationships were online and I inhabited an online identity. I was ACRI at the time. ACRI. That was my user handle as a teenager. I was Acri, and I was defined by my actions and my words online. And no one needed to know my age. No one needed to know my gender. There was nothing biological about me, really, that defined this identity online. Mm -hmm. And at that time, around that age, I also read Snow Crash for the first time. Neil Stevens. Famously, the book that invented the term metaverse. Yeah. This this big buzzword. Uh, But when I was 14 reading this, I felt like, oh my god, I'm so lucky because I already live in the metaverse. This must be ground zero, right? This is the first generation that has their consciousness online. Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of years just thinking about how much I preferred this what I would now describe as my mimetic identity over my genetic identity because online I am only my memes. I am only my memes. And as I fell into transhumanism, when I studied philosophy in college, briefly recovering, I realized that to me what's exciting about transhumanism is not necessarily putting robot eyes and neural interfaces and robot legs, stuff like that, but realizing that our culture was crowdsourced by all of our actions and we live in this meme pool that was authored by us and by our ancestors and the thoughts that occur in my mind are a consequence of the memes that I consume. The amazing thing with the selfish gene is it helps you think of yourself almost as an illusion. The individual is just a vehicle for the meme. And if you take Richard Dawkins to an extreme that I don't feel he really did in the book and maybe didn't intend to but Mm -hmm. i I think you should Mm -hmm. you should take it to this extreme (laughs) you are just a vehicle for your memes as well your consciousness your illusion of consciousness is just the process of memes traveling through you and we can have like a religious opinion on whether or not we can impact the memes that go through us and i think it's helpful to believe that you can't right so it's a sense of agency my personal motto genuinely and the root of my transhumanism is the idea that you should spread good memes. Be thoughtful of what you propagate, not just your actions, but your words and what are you not amplifying? How are you being a node in the mimetic network? Right. That's the root of my transhumanism. I realized I wanted to be, in the beginning I called it a cultural transhumanist, mm-hmm. that I want to do behavioral engineering and help build cultures that produce better behaviors so to get cancelled already in our first conversation for example I think a lot of men can recognize that we have a biologically violent impulse we have violent impulses and we have very problematic impulses when it comes to human interaction and human sexuality Mm -hmm. but thanks to culture we behave a lot better yeah a lot better yeah we do and that's amazing Like, culture made better humans there.
0: Yeah, Uh, Emil Durkheim, uh, one of the fathers of sociology and one of the first people to describe, uh, he called it anomie, to, uh, in a way, try to understand how, at the end of the 19th century, when people first started working in factories and there was a massive move from the countryside into the cities, uh, the production went up, people made money, as much as they could in those industrialist conditions, which are, you know, very similar to certain aspects of capitalism today. But one of the things that happened there was people started committing suicide more and more often, and nobody knew why. And Durkheim, Dirk, he coined the term anomie which is a way to understand how people felt completely disconnected from their surroundings coming from a countryside environment where they have a lot of connections with the people around them because you know in, in, in villages you, you need to be able to communicate with your neighbors and uh, in a way it's very very important that you have a local community that's protecting you in. Um, so he, uh, he had this idea that this is happening because people feel really disconnected and, and they're committing suicide because they're outside of the environment where they feel connected with others. Uh, In that time he also coined another term which is called social fact. So social facts are entities that exist around us in societies, but they are things that we don't really get to in any way influence. So for instance the idea of marriage. The idea of family blood ties there is a biological component to being related to someone but there is also a sociological or cultural component of being related to someone so if you have many brothers and sisters uh, actually brothers and a sister right that's right so you know do you feel connected to them
1: on a biological level or on a social level I try to ideologically focus on our mimetic connection over our biological connection. Okay. Like, I'm sure I have biological rose tinted glasses that makes it easier for me to connect with them mimetically. Mm-hmm. But mimetically, you know, we share the same upbringing, we grew up listening to the same music, playing the same computer games, having the same arguments with our parents. So, we are mimetically very linked. And I, I, I try to focus on that part. I try to. Although I am just a monkey, Mm -hmm. I try to inhabit my mimetic identity over my genetic identity. Right. So
0: in a way, siblinghood or brotherhood, sisterhood, familyhood, family is an idea which is something that already focuses you to think about those other monkeys around you in a certain way. Right. So for Durkheim, that's what a social fact is. So it's something that's so powerful, it's like gravity of society. A gravitational pull of acting in certain ways, having certain values, having certain norms. So how would that relate to a meme?
1: Well, the social facts are memes themselves. You know, the concept of marriage would be a meme, uh, as it is a behavior that is copyable. So social facts are memes. I don't know if memes are social facts, but social facts are memes, Mm -hmm. certainly. And this reminds me of something we wrote many years ago when we started looking at memetic mim- engineering as a as a profession. We did a, a, a study study. We, we wrote a, a little essay on how memes impact game design, and the fact that the behavior of the players can become a more meaningful part of the rule set of the game than the game rules itself. And my favorite example of this is uh, real-time strategy games like StarCraft, right? StarCraft, for those who don't know, is an amazing (laughs) game, where uh, you start off with a a little building that's your home and you have uh, a number of little workers that can go get resources. and You can use these resources to build other buildings that allow you to build soldiers and you're going to use your soldiers to destroy the home of the other player. Mm -hmm. Those are the Rules of the game, but one thing I realized playing a lot of StarCraft alone at first, and finishing the single-player mode and getting a lot of good scores, blah blah blah, and then jumping on online mm-hmm. and getting completely hammered by the opposition, is that there are there's a cultural element of the rules of StarCraft mm-hmm. also. For example, when you play single-player, you may not have to build your first. Uh, troop building building in mm-hmm. the first five minutes there, there's nothing saying you have to do that but if i'm playing against a human that has played against other humans that has played against other humans that has established what's called a, a meta game right then there are external rules that are just facts man you have to build your <laughs> barracks in the first five minutes or you will not win but this is not coded into the game itself right these are not the laws of physics of the game yeah those are the laws of the culture of the game mm-hmm. what we called at the time external rules or just entirely mimetically prescribed rules mm-hmm. interesting uh, that you mentioned games because recently we talked about the
0: idea of games versus the idea of play mm-hmm. which is uh, which is in you know this is something most people in I'm, I'm sure that most people really think is the same thing you were saying that there's an external factor, right? So there's there's some kind of motivation that's an external motivation to play in a certain way, behave in a certain way, win in a certain way. And how is that different from an internal motivation
1: to do something? All right, so there's a, a, a lot to unpack there, especially as you and I are lucky to know, in English there's a lot to unpack here because other languages make this a little bit easier to discuss. Mm-hmm. In Swedish, for example, there is a different verb for playing a game and playing with a toy. There are two different kinds of play, whereas in English there's unfortunately only play. Mm-hmm. But assuming we have an English-speaking audience, let's explore what the difference is between playing a game and playing with a toy. It would be memetically much easier for them to understand if they're also speaking English. Absolutely, they will have their prerequisite scaffolding. So. When you play a game, there's a set of rules that are implicit or explicit. Um, There's a set of rules and there's a desired outcome and you're working towards that specifically, right? It's very goal-oriented. Whereas play with a toy, this other verb, liek in in Swedish, is not goal-oriented. It is exploratory and expressive and you know an english speaker might think of things like sandbox games Mm -hmm. like you play in a sandbox game Mm -hmm. it's leak in a sandbox game absolutely exploration yes and these i would argue are two different modes of consciousness actually two different thought patterns different neurochemistry even i would guess i don't know this for a fact but i'd be happy to make the prediction and and have someone smarter than me actually check this okay and to really understand the difference i also want to introduce the opposite work work and play let's let's start by differentiating those two i was a terrible philosophy student but on one of the few days when i was awake and actually listening we were talking about value theory i think it was called and in that lecture professor Put out two different words instrumental and intrinsic which might collide with other people scaffolding in the game industry that i've heard of intrinsic and extrinsic if you've heard that before forget it or thinkers who have multiple ways to to think about it just just forget uh, invent these words from scratch Mm -hmm. intrinsic and instrumental Let's stipulate what these means. Something that has intrinsic value for the purposes of this conversation, something that has intrinsic value is something that you like just because you like it. Like it's not meaningful to explore why. Like mm. the taste of ice cream, you like it because you know, like, ice cream tastes good. Like we we could get really reductionist and be like, whoa, well, the taste receptors, blah, blah, blah. Not meaningful. You just like ice cream, right? Whereas instrumental value is something you like because it can be exchanged for something that has intrinsic value. So I would say that money, for example, in a healthy human psyche is an instrumental value. Mm. You want the money because actually there are other things that you want. There's a plan for the money. Now, of course, you can get you know, something akin to an eating disorder with money and just want money for money's sake. But mm-hmm. uh, in, in, a, in a healthy human being, money is just an instrumental value. And instrumental values are not bad, they're just different. And we feel different about instrumental versus intrinsic. As a salesperson, it's of course always good to cut straight to you know, what are the intrinsic values, that, the things that you want. I like to point out, for example, that if you are trying to negotiate with someone about an amount of money, and they want to keep more money on their side, like they want a a higher salary or they want a discount or whatever. They want more money on their end of the table. Mm -hmm. And if you happen to know that the reason they want that is because they're saving up for a boat. Is the boat the intrinsic value? Maybe. Maybe. But why do they want the boat? Well, maybe they want the boat so that they can go sailing with their cool friends with that hot girl that they like. Mm -hmm. Ah, Here's the thing this is what he really wants. He wants the attention of this hot girl. So maybe if I could just find some way to get this hot girl to pay him attention, I don't have to give him all of this money. Right. Just cut straight to what the intrinsic thing is. Mm -hmm. And I contend that play is when we voluntarily perform an action to get intrinsic or instrumental rewards. Typically intrinsic rewards, Mm -hmm. especially the liek part of play, the free form. We just want intrinsic rewards the act itself is rewarding whereas work has a somewhat coercive nature to it where we want to get instrumental rewards Mm -hmm. and it doesn't have to be explicitly coercive but it can be coercive in practice so for example grinding in world of warcraft no one's forcing you to do it but You have to do it because there's this instrumental value you need to get to somewhere else. If you could choose, you wouldn't do the grinding. So it's an implicit coercion there. There's an implicit coercion. And work as a mindset is when you are somewhat coerced into doing things for instrumental value. Search your feelings, you know it to be true, (laughs) right? Your job is not always work. You and I are very lucky that our jobs are play a yeah. lot of yeah. the time, right? We get to spend a lot of our consciousness doing things we feel very passionate about. We'll do it late in the evening, and it's like, oh my god, it's midnight already, because yeah. it's fun. Very but lucky. there are also parts of our job that is work, things yeah. that we have to do under implied coercion, or sometimes actual coercion. Tasks delivered on time
0: of a certain quality, understandable for others, actionable for people who are with us in this endeavor. Yeah, those things are not easy to do always. And also they are complex in a way in which we need to be very mindful of how we spread them. So because of that we have been thinking since the very beginning to have mimetic scaffolding for the way that we behave and for what we expect others to be able to do and
1: how we're performing this together, right? To say something that hopefully won't offend our CTO too much, or our CTOs actually too much, the foundational part of our stack is mimetic engineering. And the very first piece of tech we have is a principle that I believe is genuinely sacred. I'm just gonna go out and and say that. I believe it's a genuinely sacred principle, and that is you need to teach people to teach. What do I mean by that and why do I think it's sacred? I've talked myself into believing that society, culture, civilization, the first brick of that project is when someone has the realization, ah, we need to teach other people to teach. Why? Well, let's say we're a Stone Age people and you you just invented the spear. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. But now you're dead and no one has any spears anymore because you were the only one who knew how to make them. Let's try this again. Next generation, you invented the spear again Time, without knowing without knowing you without knowing that it, it happened before yeah because yeah. the spear must have been invented many loads times, of times in times. different places yeah so uh, the invention of the spear does not give a civilization so now let's try this time you invent the spear and you teach Dushko how to make a spear and then you die and Dushko knows how to make a spear but he doesn't teach anyone so when Dushko dies again we don't know how to make spears but in a third time it's like okay i'm gonna teach dushko not only how to make a spear but to teach other people to make a spear too now information in an oral tradition can survive and most of human history was under an oral tradition and as far as we know right so
0: so this is this is what we suppose based on the material evidence that we have of what a human is and what a human can do so according to certain anthropologists and biologists human minds have been the same in the way that they had the same kind of intellectual emotional capacity that you and I have right now between, some people say 70,000 years, some people say hundred. so let's just say 100,000 years, right? So it means that people could have conversations
1: like these for 100,000 years. Is I it? have to reject that as okay. someone wearing the mimetic glasses. You can't have this conversation if the memes haven't been uttered. Our consciousness is the thoughts that go through our mind and the thoughts that go through our mind are mimetically contingent. We may have had the same wetware, brains capable of being exposed to these memes but if you haven't been exposed to these memes then you are not in the same consciousness okay so the quality of the memes you speak several languages you know that you have different personalities in different languages if you don't speak a second language you should learn you know that you have a completely different personality in a second language that you speak well Damir in Croatian is different from Damir in English. Nilsson Swedish is different from Nilsson in in English. If that is the case, which we know to be true, then how could it possibly be the case that people 70,000 years ago are the same as us? They could not. They can be anatomically the same. Anatomically. But I embrace my mimetic identity. It's not meaningful that they were genetically the same as us. Because what makes this moment so precious are all the memes that have built up the scaffolding for this conversation. Absolutely.
0: Thank you for sharing this space with us. In the next episode of the Cyberdelic Podcast, we will discuss augmented reality, the metaverse, and dolphins. If you're curious about our work, you can visit matterless.com and support us on Patreon. Links are in the description below. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it and join the conversation on our socials or Discord. Most importantly, much love, and don't forget to spread good memes.